Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Well, welcome to uh, Hay on Y and Martin Amos. Um, I'm not going to give an extended introduction to Martin Amos. You know exactly who he is and what he's about. Um, He's written an absolute gem of a novella, uh, so this is um, a very privileged occasion. Uh, I think this is its first outing in public. Um, He'll be reading from it and also, uh, additional bonus, um, a short story. So welcome, Martin. Um, my parents are English, but I grew up in Wales, um, in Swansea, um, and was a typical little tap for the first ten years of my life. I played every position in the rugby field, uh, lock, prop, but mostly I was an extremely dangerous fly half. And I was a soprano in the school choir, and of course I had a Welsh accent. I sang with a Welsh accent. Um, there is a Welsh character in this novella. Um, and it's said of her that um, that if you if you got to know her, you'd have thought that Schadenfreude, the delight in the misery of others, was a Welsh word rather than a German one. Um, my sister was born in Swansea, and her middle name is Mathanry. And one of my most vivid memories of Wales is um, concerns her. We were we were driving along the the Mumbles um, in a traffic jam. Traffic jams were where uh, rare things in those days. It was the proud dawn of traffic jams. And it was caused by uh, a bloody road accident up, up ahead. Um, so I and my brother tried to shield my little sister's eyes from this event, you know, someone half covered in a blanket, twitching away at the side of the road under flashing lights. But Eva, who, was, who looked after us, uh, as we drove by, she propped my little sister up on the back seat and said, look at him, sir, writhing in agony he is. <laughs> when my brother and I used to mock my father, we always gave him a Welsh accent um, for added vehemence. And when my two sons mock me, they, uh, they like to go on about how I was born in the heart of Wales to you know, holy Welsh parents on either side and could trace my ancestry back to Glendower and so on. Um, But um, I like being connected with Wales and wish I did have a bit of uh, Celt blood in me. Um, As my father said in The Old Devils, um, there's something different about Wales. It's always a little bit greener than anywhere else. Um, I'm going to read a bit from this novella. It was a short story that grew into something longer. I'm not even sure if it's a novella or a short novel. Um, and as you'll see, it's got a kind of thriller um, shape and form. I'm halfway through Ian's new book, Enduring Love, and finding that that's also a kind of psychological thriller. One hopes that all one's novels are psychological thrillers, but it's certainly the case that... Um, Fernanda. Um, that, we come, that novelists, it seems, it might just be a wobble, but novelists are... Uh, coming closer to the genres, it seems to me, just, just for now. 
It was Lionel Trilling, I think, who said in the 50s that uh, we like difficult books. Um, well, I don't think we do like difficult books so much anymore. I mean, uh, Finnegan's Wake, do you feel like curling up with a 600-page crossword clue when you come home from work? Um, but, you know, although they're page-turners, we hope, um, we hope you turn the pages twice and see that there's, there's more going on. Um, I'll just read some from the beginning of this and give you an idea, and then I'd like to read a short story which is, which is much more personal and to do with immediate events. This is how this novella begins. Um, I am a police. That may sound like an unusual statement or an unusual construction, but it's a parlance we have. Among ourselves, we would never say, I am a policeman, or I am a policewoman, or I am a police officer. We would just say, I am a police. I am a police, and my name is Detective Mike Houlihan, and I am a woman also. What I am setting out here is an account of the worst case I have ever handled, the worst case for me, that is. When you're a police, worst is an elastic concept. You can't really get a fix on worst. The boundaries are pushed out every other day. Worst, we'll ask, there's no such thing as worst. But for Detective Mike Houlihan, this was the worst case. Downtown at CID, with its 3,000 sworn, there are many departments and sub-departments, sections and units whose names are always changing. Organized crime, major crimes, crimes against persons, sex offenses, auto theft, check and fraud, special investigations, asset forfeiture, intelligence, narcotics, kidnapping, burglary, robbery, and homicide. There is a glass door marked vice. There is no glass door marked sin. The city is the offense. We are the defense. That's the general idea. In my time, I have come in on the aftermath of maybe a thousand suspicious deaths, most of which turned out to be suicides or accidentals or plain unattendeds. So I've seen them all, jumpers, stumpers, dumpers, dunkers, bleeders, floaters, poppers, bursters. I've seen the bodies of bludgeoned one-year-olds. I have seen the bodies of gang-raped nonagenarians. I have seen bodies left dead so long that your only shot at a TOD is to size the maggots. But of all the bodies I've ever seen, none have stayed with me in my gut, like the body of Jennifer Rockwell. I say all this because I am part of the story I'm going to tell, and I feel the need to give you some idea of where I'm coming from. Allow me to apologize in advance for the bad language, the diseased sarcasm, and the bigotry. All police are racist. It's part of our job. New York police hate Puerto Ricans. Miami police hate Cubans. Houston police hate Mexicans, San Diego police hate Amerindians, and Portland police hate Eskimos. Here, we hate pretty well everybody who's non-Irish <laughs> or non-police. Anyone can, can become a police, Jews, blacks, Asians, women, and once you're there, you're a member of a race called police, which is obliged to hate every other race. For me, the thing began on the night of March 4th and then evolved day by day, and that's how I'm going to tell this part of it. March 4th. That evening, I was alone. My guy, Tobe, was out of town, attending some kind of computer convention. I hadn't even started on dinner. I was sitting there with my disgust group biography, open on the couch next to the ashtray. It was 2015. I remember the time because I had just been start startled out of a nod by the night train 
which came through early, as it always does on Sundays. The night train, which shakes the floor I walk on and keeps my rent way down. The phone rang. It was Johnny Mack, a.k.a. Detective John Makatich, my colleague in Homicide, who has since made squad supervisor. A great guy and a hell of a detective. Mike, he said, I'm going to have to call in a big one. And I said, well, let's hear it. This is a bad one, Mike. I want you to write a note for me. Note meant N-O-D, notification of death. In other words, he wanted me to go tell somebody that somebody close had died, that somebody they loved had died, that was already clear from his voice, and died suddenly and violently. I considered. I could have said, I don't do that anymore, though asset forfeiture, where I work, is hardly corpse-free. And then we might have had one of those bullshit TV conversations with him saying, you've got to help me out, and Mike, I'm begging you, and me saying, forget it, and no way, and dream on, pal, until everyone is bored blind, and I finally come across. I mean, why say no when you have to say yes for things to proceed? So I just said again, well, let's hear it. Colonel Tom's daughter killed herself tonight, he said. Jennifer, I said. How? 22 in the mouth. I waited. Mike, I want you to go notify Colonel Tom and Miriam this hour. I lit another cigarette. I don't drink anymore, but man, do I smoke. I said, I've known Jennifer Rockwell since she was eight years old. Yeah, Mike, you see, if not you, who? Okay, I said, but you're going to have to take me by the scene. In the bathroom, I applied makeup like someone doing a chore, wiping down a counter with my mouth meanly clenched. I used to be something, I guess, but now I'm just another big blonde old broad. Without thinking about it, I found I had brought along my notebook, my flashlight, my rubber gloves, and my 38 snub. In police work, you soon get to be familiar with what we call the yeah right suicide, where you go in the door, see the body, look around the room, and say, yeah right. This was definitely not a yeah right suicide. I've known Jennifer Rockwell since she was eight years old. She was a favorite of mine, but she was also a favorite of everybody else's. And I watched her grow into a kind of embarrassment of perfection, brilliant, beautiful, and not intimidating, or only as intimidating as the brilliant, beautiful can't help being, no matter how accessible they seem. Her dad's a cop. Her considerably older brothers are cops, both with Chicago PD, Area 6. Jennifer was not a cop. She was an astrophysicist here at Mount Lee. <coughs> Johnny Mack and myself pulled up in the unmarked Whitman Avenue, detached and semi-detached residences on a wide tree-lined street, an ac academic dormitory on the edge of the 27. I climbed out in my stretch pants and my low pumps. So the radio cars and the beat cops were there, and the science crew and the medical examiners were there, and Tony Silvera and that Ultano boy were there, and some neighbors, but them you look right through. These uniformed figures were churning under the dome lights, and I knew they swayed to sudden priorities. It was like in the Southern, when you keyed the mic and said there was an officer down, down, in some cases, meaning fucked up forever in a cross alley after a chase on a warehouse floor, or reeling alone around a vanished drug corner with both his hands over his eyes. When somebody close to the murder police starts crafting overtime for the murder police, then special rules apply. This is racial. This is an attack on every last one of us. 
I badge my way through the tunnel of uniforms around the front door, making the landlady as my best witness or last to see. There's a fat full moon reflecting the sun onto my back. Not even Italian police are sentimental about full moons. You're looking at a workload increase of 25 to 35%, a full moon on a Friday night, and you're talking a two-hour backup in the emergency room and long lines trailing in and out of trauma. At the door to Jennifer's apartment, I was met by Silvera. He and myself have worked many cases. We have stood together like this in many a stricken home, but not quite like this. Where is she, I asked. Bedroom. The bedroom led off the living room, and I knew where to go, because I had been to this residence before, maybe a dozen times in half as many years, to drop something off for Colonel Tom to give Jennifer a ride to a ball game or a beach party. I went in and closed the door behind me. This is how you do it. You kind of wheel round slowly into the scene, periphery first, body last. I mean, I knew where she was. My radar went to the bed, but she had done it on a chair in the corner to my right. Otherwise, curtains half drawn against the moonlight, orderly dressing table, tousled sheets, and a faint smell of lust. At her feet, an old black-stained pillowcase and a squirt can of 303. I've said that I'm used to being around dead bodies, but I took a full hot flush when I saw Jennifer Rockwell glaze naked on the chair, her mouth open, her eyes still moist, wearing an expression of childish surprise. The surprise light, not heavy, as if she had come across something she'd lost and no longer expected to find, and not quite naked. Oh my, she'd done it with a towel turbaned around her head, like you do to dry your hair, but now, of course, the towel was wet through and solid red looked as though it weighed more than any, any living woman could carry. Silvera went in to bag the weapon. Then the crime lab techs would get her prints and measure distances and take many photographs. And then the ME would come and roll her and pronounce her. If there's one aspect of homicide work that women do about a thousand times better than men, it's writing a note. Women are good at that, at breaking the news. Men fuck it up because of the way they always handle emotion. They always have to act the NOD, so they come on like a preacher or a town crier. We're all numb and hypnotized, like someone reading off a list of commodity futures or bowling scores. Then halfway through, it hits them what they're doing, and you can tell they're close to losing it. I've seen beat cops burst out laughing in the face of some poor little schnook whose wife just walked under a Mack truck. At such moments, men realize that they're imposters, and then anything can happen. Whereas I would say that women feel the true weight of the thing immediately, and after that it's a difficult event, but not an unnatural one. Sometimes, of course, they crack up laughing. I mean the supposedly bereaved. You're just getting into your my sad duty routine, and they're waking up the neighbors at three in the morning to pop a party. Well, then she goes, does go and break the news. Um, and the parents fetched their coats, and we drove downtown. Colonel Tom made the ID leaning on a freezer door in the ME's office on Battery and Jeff. March 5th. I woke up this morning and Jennifer was standing at the end of my bed. She was waiting for my eyes to open. I looked and she was gone. The ghost of a dead person must divide into many ghosts to begin with. It is labor intensive to begin with because there are many be bedrooms to visit, many sleepers to stand over. Some sleepers, maybe just two or three, the dead will never leave. I'm not going to, the fashionable word is segue into this short story. Um, sometimes 
in fact, it's the first time it's ever happened to me. Stories just happen to you, and all you've got to do is put them down. Um, <coughs> this was such a case. Um, to just give you the necessary background, um, it's about the death of a young boy, Elias Fawcett, who died at the age of 17 from a, a bad drug. Um, he's a friend of mine. His parents are my friends, but we're getting so old now that even friends' children become friends. Um, and his brother, his older brother, Marlowe, was staying with my ex-wife and my two sons when in Cape Cod when the news came through. And then shortly afterwards, my two sons came down to Long Island to stay with me for the rest of the summer. Um, and this is, as it were, narrated by my older boy. It's written in a kind of, as he explains, in a kind of sarcastic American accent. One of the hard things about reading this is that you feel you need an American accent. Um, this is a short story where the American accent has been provided. It's called What Happened to Me on My Holiday, and it's for Elias Fawcett, 1978 to 1996. A terrible thing happened to me on my holiday, a terrible thing and a permanent thing. It won't be the same ever again. <coughs> but the first thing to say is, don't panic. I'm mad suffering from brain damage or from adenoids and I can write better than this when I want to, but I don't want to, mad for now. Let me explain. I'm half English and half American. My mum is American and my dad is English. I go to school in London and my pronunciation is English. Crisp, clear, even vainly Axonian, the same as my dad's. Americans often seem surprised to hear an 11-year-old who speaks as I speak. Granddaddy Jack, who is American, admits that he finds it uncanny, as if such an accent requires great concentration, even from grown-ups, let alone children. Americans seem to suspect that the English relax and speak American behind closed doors. <laughs> this is his joke. Shouting out on their return, honey, I'm home. My other grandfather felt differently. English, the hymn, was the more natural voice. So this story is for them, too, as well as for Elias. I tell it this way in sargastic Americanese because I don't want it to be clear, to be all crisp and clear. There is this strange resistance. Me and my younger brother Jacob usually spend the early part of the summer in Cape Gad with my mum and the later part in East Hampton with my, with my mum, sorry, and the later part in East Hampton with my dad. But this year, we went to my dad's a little sooner than planned. When the day came, we got up at the grag of dawn and filed into the gar with our uncle Desmond. It was a five-hour drive to New York, but the traffic wasn't heavy, and Desmond told us many interesting things about dreams, about all that states. We seemed to be there in no dime. My dad was waiting on 96th Street. We grabbed some lunch and then went out to Lang Island in a big goach called the Jidney. In the Jidney, you felt you were in a plane, not nada buzz. Three Irish juice or Berrier, three peanuts, individuals, bad lights to read by, and a lavatory in the bag. We soon settled into my dad's rented house in the woods, nothing fancy. In fact, it could have been Oklahoma with a big up drug in the driveway, an old car seat on the porch, and the neighbors always quarreling and crying out, get up, Margaret, on one side, and why, Garen, why? on the other. 
But it did, too, did have the usual bursting refrigerator and multiple bathrooms plus gable DV. Some stew and Thasda, some Beavis and Butthead, then up the wooden hills to Bedfordshire. My dad, too, was very upset about Elias, and so, too, was Isabel, herself big with child. As I said, we went to my dad's a little earlier than planned this year, journeying down from the Cape to Lang Island. Nearly every summer on Cape Gad, Mr. Marlowe Fawcett comes to pay us a visit. Practically a grown-up now, Marlowe used to have a jab as a counselor at a boys' camp, and so he is an expert at guessing what boys want to do. He is understandably babular with Jack, Jacob, and me, but, well, Marlowe had to go home early this year, and my mum had to go home early this year because of what happened back in London. It was a dull day when Marlowe heard the news about his younger brother, the news about Elias. Jacob and I went with him up the dirt road to where we parked the car. Over Horseleach Band, there swam a cloud of gray, not mist, not vague, but the gray haze of cities and of streets. Up from the band, it floated, lingering, trapped in the trees, and nothing was clear. Dreamily, Marlowe got into the car and closed the door. He went to Bravenstown Airport, first the little plane to Basden, then the bigger plane to London Town. And my mum soon followed. So, as I said, we went to my dad's a little earlier than planned. My younger brother, Jacob, is totally obsessed by turtles, dordoises, frags, dodes, labsters, grabs, and all sorts of slimy and weird-shaped reptiles, amphibians, and crustaceans. He knows all their Latin names, all their battenings, all their habitats. He's an expert on these creatures, and so am I, whether or not I want to be, because Jacob's given me an earful, more or less, round the flag. So on many days in East Hampton, we went on grabbing expeditions. The bays seemed to foam with grabs and with sprads, minnows, diddlers. I used a drawl net for the sprads, and on my first sweep, I got loads. With the grabs, you accumulate them in a big bag, and at the end of the day, you have a grab raise. You draw a circle in the sand. The first grab to clear it is then proclaimed the winner. No grabs die. You chuck them all back into the Z. At our favorite bay, which we called Dead Man's Landing, there was also a van that showed up every hour or so and sold lally bags and ice cream. On these grabbing trips, we would have them bring along my little cousin, Bablo. Bablo is only four years old, and you have to be very careful with him when he goes in the sea because he can only swim with what he calls his armies or his floaties. Bablo has a little sister named IJ who is also very due. One day Jacob captured a giant grab and came running up to the beach to grab it in the bag, the plastic bag or, or metal container in which all the grabs were stored. I was sitting on a towel reading a book. Jacob ran back down the sand and then Bablo came up to me and said, I found a grab too. Yeah, I said, but that one's dead, Bab. Shall I grab it in the bag with the others? I said, that's this. Why would we want that in the bag? No, Bablo. And he said, why not? Is it too big? It isn't too big, stupid. It's dead. And it was dead, big time. Half its baddie had ratted off. A single pinzer dangled from a length of braid dendron. It didn't even smell. That's how dead that grab was. Can I grab it in the bag with the others? Definitely, nah. Is that this, Pablo? No. 
Just then, Jacob cried out from the shore, a new discovery. We went to check it out. The shallows were littered with dozens of dead sprats, probably fishermen's bait. Pablo battled in to inspect them and came back with a dead sprat. So we had our final swims, Pablo playing with his inflatable shark and wearing his inflatable armies, and then the dime game for us to hit, hit the road. Pablo refused to leave the sprat behind. He said he wanted to bring it home and install it in a bags in his room. The sprad would be his bed instead of a dag or a gag. In the car, I said, well, Bab, that sprad will be a nice air freshener for your room. And he said, why? Why? Because pretty soon it'll begin to reek as dead fish. I don't mind. Why not? Because I'll rub some cream on it. Oh, yeah, what sort of cream, Bablo? Fish cream. We all had a good juggle at that. And I said, what about rads, Bab? What if a rad shows up in the night? I don't mind. Why not? I won't smell the rad. Why not? Because of the fish cream. <laughs> More juggling. Why don't you bab back to Dead Man's Landing, Bablo, for the dead grab? It'll be a bow for your fish. But my dad said that Bablo already had his blade full, first with the fish, then with the rad. When we got to his place, Pablo introduced his mum to the new bed. This is my fish. It's silver. It's small. It's dead. It comes from the sea. It lives in this bag. As if the fish being dead was just another thing about it, just another of its attributes. Bablo's mum seemed far from enthusiastic. But when we phoned the following mo morning for an update, Bablo said his fish was absolutely fine. When Pablo was only three, his mum made him a lion outfit for Halloween. He dried it on, gave a full-throated roar, and growled, I'm a lion costume. <laughs> My dad calls these funny slips of Pablo's category errors. One dime this summer, Bab and I were discussing cars and driving, and I said, your dad, is he a good driver then? Pablo nodded with his eyes closed. Baba, he replied in a voice both gambadent and gambadential. Baba can drive all the way to the city. And he gave another nad for emphasis, as if to say, put that in your pipe and smoke it. So I just said, is that so? My dad can only make it as far as Wayne's gag. Then he pulls over, and they have to help him out of the car. <laughs> Bablo seemed ready to credit it. How's the fish, Bab? Fine. Still going strong? Yes, he said. My fish is fine. Clearly, Pablo does not yet understand what death is, but who does? Death was much on my mind in the summer, much on my mind, because of Elias. And so death has been much on my mind. My dad said that early in the summer, Elias came round to his flat. He came round to pick up a jagged, but the jagged was in my dad's car, and the car was elsewhere, having its battery fixed, etc., etc. Typical Elias chasing a jacket across town. So he hung around for the whole afternoon, playing the pinball machine and, of course, the electric guitar. And my dad said that the memory of him was really fresh. His memory of Elias, or Fabian, which was his nickname, remained really fresh. Isabel also ran into him during the early summer in a dube train on the Zendral Line under London and its streets. Typical Elias, with all his bags and bundles, his jackets and hats, gay attic, vestive, breast for dime, and still daring for a half-hour chat. So the memory is fresh, and my memory is fresh. But is it so fresh 
simply because Elias was so young, so fresh himself. My dad told me that he senses the ghost of Elias in his room at dawn, waiting at the end of the bed. I see him at night, a young ragstar with flyaway hair and Greek lights all around. I also remember the day we heard the news on Gate Gad, how Jacob and I went with Marlow up the dirt road to the car and the cloud over the band with its urban gray, the gray of Dadden and Gord Road, of Jaring Grass Road, the gray of Gooch Street. The sky was gray and nothing was clear. In the final week of the holiday, we had an incident, an incident where death again fleetingly showed its face. It featured Bablo and another category error. We were all swimming in the pool that belongs to Alex and Bam, much activity there because they also have a drambolene. You get all had, jumping, then you leap into the pool and cool down. Bablo was swimming with his armies, his floaties. Me and Jacob were messing around, playing Dutch or Margot Bolo. My dad was on a lounger, having a cigarette and chatting with Bam, and suddenly Bablo came out of nowhere and sprang into the pool without his floaties. Bablo had forgotten his armies. In the end, it was no big deal. Still in his trunks, my dad just dragged his butt and did a sort of spastic raising dive into the middle of the pool. He gat to Bablo and held him up, and Bablo was not distressed. He didn't even have time to panic. My dad even encouraged Bablo to swim back to the shallow end, and he did with little assistance. And my dad calmly finished his bag. Well, that was fun, said Bab, emerging from the pool. He stuck out his chest and announced, I went swimming without floaties. I went swimming without armies. No, in fact, said my dad, you went swimming. Another of Bab's slips. Because you don't enter the Olympics in an event called the 200-meter freestyle without armies. <laughs> you don't go for a midnight swim without floaties. It's called a swimming pool, after all not a swimming without armies pool. That day seemed to be an appropriate time to bid farewell to Bablo Sprague. When we dragged him off with his mum, made, we made discreet inquiries about the famous fish, and she rolled her eyes and said, oh, that fish, will I ever hear the last of that fish? Apparently the fish had begun to rant and give off a, a terrible stench, but Bab refused to let his mum chug it out. He claimed his fish was fine. They'd tried every sort of cream on it, fish creams, <laughs> rad creams, though really these were perfumes and disinfectants. She told him again and again that this fish was history, that this fish was, in fact, an eggs fish. But Bab maintained that the fish was still, still his bed. When the bang became quite intolerable, Bablo's mum just smuggled it out and said that a ragoon or a stoat must have borne it all. Surprisingly, Bablo didn't add protest or cause a fuss. This seemed to satisfy his idea of the natural order of things. And maybe somebody said, do not grieve. Bablo, do not fret. Your sprat is happy with its sprat gad in its sprat heaven. Your fish will be reborn as a shark, a dalvin, an agdibus, or as some great manster of the deep. One way or the other, your fish is thine. August became September. Time to go home. Lang Island had been a lad of fun, but I was pleased to be bagging my bags. Too many fields, too many trees, too much sand, too much sea. I was ready to return to a city, despite what cities are and despite what cities do. No more rented house, no more 
Get up, Margaret. No more. Why, Garen, why? It was on the way to the airport that the subject of Elias was raised, the subject of death. My dad said, do you feel differently about it, about death? I said, I understand that people die now. And Jacob piped up, I understood that years ago. No, you idiot, I said. I understood it, but I never really grasped it until now. And Jacob nodded. He too understood. Before, I knew that crabs died and that fish died. I knew that the old, with all their eggs and veins, might have reason to be grateful for the prospect of an ending. And of course, all over the world, in vast numbers, people crash and starve and bleed and burn, get clubbed, crushed, stabbed, shat, bawling, bawling away in vast numbers all over the world. But death had never been so near where it has no business. Bablo, Jacob, Elias, we are the young, are we now? But then you're waiting on the dirt road with Marlow by the car, with Marlow in a daze, in a dream, in a nightmare. Grayness is seeping upwards from the band and nothing is clear. And then suddenly the gray brightens, giving you a deep throb in the core of your skull. Elias went swimming without his armies. Alas, Elias went too deep without his floaties. And you must do this, whether or not you survive. One day you must. How many grown-ups do you see when you go to the beach swimming with floaties? How many adults are out there in the bounding waves swimming with armies? And if they do go under, then they don't return. Nothing has the power to bring them back. No sleight of hand, no trig, photography, no medicine, no miracle. They stay where they are forever, alone in the cold earth. I feel it in my heart now. I remember Marlowe's eyes and tears begin to gather in my own because one fine day you can open your eyes and see no brother in the twin bed. You go around the house, but your brother is nowhere to be found. The holiday has come and gone. The holiday is over. The holiday has come and gone. The holiday is over. Goodbye to it all. And that is what happened to me on my holiday. Thank you. shape of the afternoon is going to be that I'll have uh, a few questions from Martin myself, and then I think we'll throw it open. Um, Martin, I want to take you back to the novella. Um, you've written extended journalism, long short stories, uh, short novels way back, film scripts, which I think sort of resemble novellas, um, and your close friend Saul Bellow, who has excelled in this form. Um, so I wonder what took you so long. That is to say, what kind of formal choices get made, if at all? And secondly, what precisely is a novella? Is it a separate form, or is it just a short novel? Does it impose particularly uh, interesting limitations and opportunities? Um, well, I'm not sure that this is a novella. Um, it's, it's dangerously close to a short novel. Um, I remember when I wrote Time's Arrow, which was also a short story that grew. Um, I thought it was going to be a short, short story, and then, it, then I thought, no, it's going to be a long, short story. And then I thought, great, no, it's a novella. You know, I've never written one of those before. Um, but then there was a certain point where 
the novella, the feeling of the novella left me and I thought, no, this is a short novel. Um, like all, you know, like every aspect of writing, it's, it's, it's an unconscious decision or, or feeling that, um, that prompts you. And uh, I just felt that this was, this had become something else and was, was now, or, or a novella will, I imagine, I've never written one, I think, unless this, in fact, is one, without me knowing it. But um, it suggests that there are a p poetic condensation. Muriel, Muriel, Muriel Spark said that, um, that all, all novels are failed short stories and all short stories are failed novels. Um, Saul Bellow, in, his, in, in these last short works of his, um, has quoted Chekhov. Chekhov said towards the end of his life, um, you know, it's a funny thing, but I'm, I'm mad about shortness. Whatever I read, myself or other people, it's not short enough. And <laughs> Bellow added, you know, I, I find myself emphatically agreeing with this. Um, and I think, I think as you get older as a novelist, the, the sort of musical, the playing with words bit um, ceases to interest you so much. And um, words like condensation, distillation mm. um, are more and more important. It struck me as a novella, and I, because I thought that um, one of the essential things about the form is the speed, the speed with which that narrator is established within two pages. Uh, it's got something of the quality of short story and pace. And I, I think we've had this conversation uh, in private o over the years, but a number of, of great writers have performed so well in this form. I think you know, Conrad's Heart of Darkness, Man's Death in Venice, James's Turn of the Screw. Tolstoy. And Tolstoy, Chekhov, Gogol, even Lady into Fox, which is David Garnett. And Kafka's probably his best work, Metamorphosis, with that magical length, you know, 25, 30,000 words. Um, and I wonder, too, if there isn't something about the writing process, the fact this is something you could get down in three or four months, you know, that you can... There's something about the pace of the writing itself. Does that, does that enter into it? Yeah, I think it does. I mean... Um, Writing a, a novel, and especially writing a long novel, um, you feel um, the, you feel a, a wonderful freedom as you begin, because you're assigning life to various propositions and, and um, summoning characters out of the ether, um, and you're drunk with power as you begin a novel. But um, by the time you're past page 300 or page 400, um, all the things you've set going in the novel are act as, as constrictions and what was once um, a wide and airy space has become a tunnel and that tunnel becomes about the size of your body towards the end and you emerge from it with an almost audible pop because it's been contracting all the way through. Um, with a shorter piece, with a short story, everything has to be right but, but there, is, there is no gravity acting on mm. the prose in the way there is with a long novel. And the novella, if it exists, I mean, I, I guess this is more like 50,000 words, which is heading out into, although it's, mm. it's not just to do with a word count, it's to do with how you feel about it. But um, you s you're certainly in a, you know, a nice m middle space between those, those two extremes. One of the pleasures of reading, I'm, I'm going to hang 
to, to the concept, hang on to the concept that this is a novella. Because I thought one of the pleasures of it is the fact that it can be read, if not at a sitting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a three or four hour experience. Um, and because it has a, a fine onward rush, you're held there much in the way that you might be at a, in a movie. Uh, which brings me to my second question, really, a second subject for you. This is the first novel of yours in which you really wholeheartedly and fully embrace uh, not quite America, but also the America of the imagination, the America of Hollywood film noir, of uh, the police novel, the the Elmore Leonard. And I thought uh, just a few pages in of that wonderful gray dawn Manhattan opening of, of Money, and thought how powerful America has been now that you, know, you can see uh, several of your novels piled up behind you. Is its power something to do with your own childhood or just the strange quality of, of the American demotic? How, what is America for you? Well, I did spend a year there as a child, and I think without that I, I would have lacked confidence in my ear. Um, I think you know, I wasn't taking notes as a nine-year-old, but... Um, but a lot of it seeps in, and um, so it's always been my natural second country. But I think it's, it's really, a, in as much as you ever have a decision about these things, it's, it, it came from my reading. And that when, when I started writing novels in 1973, um, the English novel was a very, at a very constricted point in its evolution. It was always 225 pages long. It was always about the middle classes. Um, it was always well designed, almost like a restaurant, you know, a nice decor, and, um, color scheme. And I was aware of, of these novels around me, but my reading was all of the Americans. And, and there you had, you know, big novels that, that were trying to def- define a country. Um, it may surprise you to, to hear this view, but I think that Americans have a kind of uh, more respect for writers than than the British. Uh, in England, a writer is, is slightly less interesting than Joe Schmo uh, from the sort of opinion former's point of view. And I think that's because when America was coming together, when cultural self-consciousness dawned in America, they were wondering, you know, what is this place? Is it just a collection of Lithuanians, Italians, Jews, Greeks, Germans? Or is it a country with a soul, um, an identity? And I think at some level, everyone understood that the writers would be, would play an important part of, of answering that question and, and defining what being an America, being an American was. Um, yeah, we didn't need that here because we all know what being English is. But um, you need it in America, and so that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to try to encapsulate the whole of of this world um, in a novel and. I've since realized, for instance, that not only do I have the American connection in, in most of my books, but um, that there is no one from the middle classes in my books. Um, in other words, sort of 80 or 90% of the population is, is completely unrepresented in my novels. Um, I feel that they're well represented elsewhere, but um, they're not in my books. So it was a kind of distortion that, that arose out of reading as much as anything else. Mm. I note that the, the dedicatees of Night Train are well, Saul Bellow and his wife. And I mean, I felt the, um, there, were, there were various acts of 
various collegiate nods. Um, one of your characters called Bats Denziger, which uh, is a wonderful American name, but also evoked some bellow names too. Um, there's a marvelous stretch of uh, speculation in this police novel about, about the universe, and one thinks uh, that you're nodding towards the bellow of Dean's December, um, say that, yeah, I, I, I can do this too, and maybe even a little better. Uh, I just wonder, th these, these kind of narrators, this, this policewoman, who doesn't have much of a formal education. She went to Pete Brown University. I'm sorry, you missed that out. There are American yeah. universities yeah. called Joe Blogs. Um, but she is still able, like, like many of, of Bellow's uh, best narrators, to produce for us deep-sea thinking. In other words, there isn't such a division between the demotic and um, the best kinds of speculation. So, Well, I think that's... that's um, that's a decision you make early on in your writing life. That you, I mean, the, the, the narrator of money is is is, you know, scarcely literate. But as I began on the first page, I thought I'm not going to limit him to this. Mm. I mean, you can write a realistically stupid novel if that's what you want to do, and and that kind of mimicry has its place in the novel. But um, you've got to you've got to. V.S. Pritchett, I thought, was a great master of this. Is that you 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 give you articulate their their deeper thoughts, their you know w what they dream, what they could, what they could, s what they would say if they could, um, and I think literary convention soon takes care of that, and um, yeah. you don't have them you know quoting um, Rambo, uh, but you have you have you you give them the credit for for you, know, you let their soul speak rather mm. than their social you know, demographic profile. Because Mike reflects on all the essential things here, and, and particularly on death, and, and particularly on suicide, uh, which is really the heart of this novel. This is the novel of a suicide. Uh, it rather turns the genre on, a he on its head. I mean, a police novel is usually the accumulation of motives, and this mm. is the inversion of that, the stripping away. Um, yeah. Right at the heart of this novel is a very bleak and distressingly meaningless act. Um, a woman who has an embarrassment of perfection takes her life and I mean famously you you you, you had a, a character once whose urge to self-destruction carried with it the, the symbolism of the, the planet itself wanting to destroy itself here here there isn't that symbolic baggage but there's still a large uh, emotional undertow to this and I just wonder what about suicide does it rate higher in your mind as, as a crime than murder itself it seems as though no, well this there's is possible there's a nice line that I had to stop myself Feeling from Ulysses, which was um, uh, suicides used to be buried at, um, at the crossroads under a pile of rocks with a stake through the heart, and Joyce says, as if their hearts weren't broken already. Um, and and it, it still is in many American states a crime, and always was a crime in, in earlier England. You'd have all, all your property would go to the state if you committed suicide. Um, I find I can I can summer summon up no disapproval of, of suicide. I can, um, I think the act is is complete in itself, and there's in a sense nothing more to say. Um, it's a as soon as you look into suicide, you see that it's a uniquely chaotic subject. That um, statistics are much woollier there than almost anywhere else one, one can think of. Um, it suicides generate false data. Um, so I. No, I, I wouldn't 
regard it as a crime at all. I would have to just regard it with complete neutrality. But a kind yeah. of ultimate tragedy. I mean, it's oh, yes. beyond. Yeah. Beyond that. Um, there's an inter you know, there's many interesting things about suicide emerge in as much as they can, and that um, in all cultures, the older you get, the more at risk you are. Um, it always, it often seems that, as the narrator says, that a kind of show of suicides is attacking the young, but um, these things always even out, and it's a, it's a very steady, you're more at risk the older you get. Um, an incredibly somber effect, I think. And the men outstripping the women. Men two and a half times as likely to commit suicide. Women two and, two and a half times more likely to attempt suicide. Except on Mother's Day. Mother's Day is the is the day of highest highest suicides in America. I think it must be that brunch they have at the Quality Inn. And We've got uh, ten or fifteen minutes, and I wonder if there are some questions from the audience. Down here. Could I follow up your question about uh, suicide? Um, because it does seem to me that those of us who've been associated uh, with someone who has committed suicide are left very much with the feeling that possibly it is the most heinous crime of all because a crime is something that is an offence against society. And the impact of a suicide on the society around the person who does this thing is the most terrible thing that probably anyone ever experiences. Um, uh, the other th thing that interests me is why is it that some societies like the Japanese and the Germans, for example, do commit suicide <laughs> more even more than Americans? Um, it, is, it, it is heinous in, in, in many ways, and, and the key to it is, I think, that by definition, the suicide says, I can't cope with this, I'm passing it on to you. Um, that is what happens. That, um, this is beyond me, you'll have to deal with it. And um, It's often said that the more damage that is done to the suicide body, the more aggressive the suicide is. But um, if, you, if the body remains whole, mi you know, merely mimicking sleep, and this is considered a quieter approach to the, to the living, but I'm very uncertain about that. I don't think, you know, that the woman who, who killed herself with an electric, cut her throat with an electric carving knife has any real thoughts other than immediate escape from consciousness. Consciousness is intolerable, and I think that's, that's what you have to acknowledge in the case of the suicide. As for the, um, the Germans and the Japanese, and I think the Romanians, who are even higher than either, um, I think in Japan there's probably a historical, cultural kind of the, the kamikaze, etc. Seppuku, it, it is in the culture. Um, otherwise, it's all very. The professions, for instance, that are most at risk are vets, um, uh, chemists, doctors, um, where it seems, and farmers, where it seems that that familiarity with suffering, often dumb suffering is hugely important, but availability of means is more important still. And one very shocking statistic is that uh, when we still use toxic gas in this country for domestic use, um, there were, I'll conjure the figures, but I, the ratio is all I can remember, but there were, say, 10,000 suicides a year by that means, but the minute the, the gas was, was made non-toxic, um, 
that figure, of course, disappeared, but there was no jump anywhere else in the suicide figures. So availability of means, I think, because... So had North Sea gas been installed um, earlier, yeah. Sylvia Plath might be reading at this um, festival. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, and I think a friend of mine, Antoine Rothschild, killed himself in Paris last year, and um, someone wrote what I know to be untrue, but I, I was very sympathetic to it, saying suicide should be considered involuntary in some cases, in perhaps most cases, that it's, it's a fit, it's a brainstorm that, um, that lasts 10 or 15 minutes and then it's gone, um, and availab availability of means will push you over. And, of course, in America, it's, it's the gun is the main means. Let's have another question. Um, a lot of modern novels seem about to be about extremely distasteful subjects, and I have to confess I, I'm put off at about page five. Can you uh, elaborate why novelists, modern novelists in particular, seem to be, you know, literary novelists, seem to be choosing, choosing such extremely distasteful things to write about? I mean, there's a lot of joy in life, isn't there? Yes. Well, no, it's funny, I've never heard that objection to the modern novel before. Um, taking the wrong-footed me slightly. But, um, I think I'm not sure that it hasn't always been the case, and that um, uh, after the amiabilities of the Pickwick Papers, Dickens was under huge attack for dealing with the unamiabilities of Oliver Twist. Um, and so it goes on. And he, he defended himself very stoutly against that, and saying that you know, the novelist's first priority is to is to be free of such fastidious um, objections. I agree that it is a, it is a kind of it's a tendency and um, has long been established as a tendency, um, and I can't answer it. But um, for each novelist, the choice is really made for him. Um, you don't you don't choose your subject matter. This is the mistake that F.R. Levis and others made, that, that it was a moral choice to select your material. In fact, you know, it, it's much more that it chooses you. And if you, um, you find that certain things attract your, your writing instinct, then there's, there's really nothing you can do about that. Ian, what would you say? You, you, you're no stranger to this. Um, yeah. <laughs> the heat's on you, pal. Um, <laughs> my turn later. Uh, I think if we look at all the literature that we consider great, it, it deals with that which is difficult conflicts between people, whether it's you know, the, the trials of Odysseus, the blood warfare and treachery of the Bible. I mean, I don't know where you would look to find extended works of great literature that don't deal in human difficulty. I mean, it's, uh, life is hard and difficult. Um, and I think in there too, there is maybe uh, responsibility is too big a word, but the joy comes through. I think um, even in Night Train, uh, there's something very celebratory about it for all that, because um, often that celebration is right in the language itself. The short story Martin read, uh, I think, takes a perfect example. It's really a story about death, but it's also a celebration of a child's eye and of uh, of the language itself. Um, so I think it's, it's always been a, a double-edged sword. And I think you writers write about what they most fear, and um, in a way you domesticate these terrors by having them, you know, in a separated by hard covers from, from 
these things are not what attra attract you in life, um, but you explore them at this one remove, and, and that that takes the sting out of them often. Let's have an easier question. <laughs> <laughs> Gentleman at the back. Thank you for waiting. You referred at the beginning to um, novelists starting to converge on the genres. Do you feel that's because people are starting, to, writers are starting to lose faith in their audience's ability to keep up, or do you feel that market pressures are pushing you towards a genre which is becoming increasingly more commercially respectable? Um, it's certainly, it's certainly not market forces. Um, it's because the way novels come to you. It, they have no appeal for you other, other than it's your next book to write, and that's that's how you proceed. But you, you do step back from them sometimes and see certain tendencies. Uh, I think novelists are, as a group, losing faith in their in their audience, but they always have done. Um, Gore Vidal said recently, "It's not it's not that there are no writers, it's that there are no readers." And G.S. Naipaul said something of of the same kind of thing recently, also. Um, but but this is an ancient myth of ubi sunt, you know, where are they now? The good has gone, the golden age is always in the past. Um, to which, no doubt, Naipaul would say, ah, but this time it really is happening. But that's part of the myth, too, that you think, that, yeah, well, it's true that it, it used to be a myth, but now it's reality. Um, I, I, have, I have a lot of faith in, in the reader. I think, um, I think you know, reading is not just about the words on the page, the notions, the characters, the plot, the, um, even the imagery. Uh, re reading a novel is, is a way of communing with the, the author, um, and that will not be duplicated by any other technology or any other art form. Was there any particular thematic reason that you chose to use a female narrator? Um, well, it was, a, it was a female victim, so it had to be a female narrator. Um, I wrote a, I've written another novel, Other People, um, from a female point of view, and that was, that was a much later decision in that I was at least three pages in when I realized it had to be a woman. With this, I always knew it had to be a woman. Um, and to be candid, to speak the truth while that's still okay. Um, the reason I changed the character from other people, gave her a sex change, was that um, for the purpose of, of that story, um, I had an innocent wandering out into society. And it, you know, uh, a woman is, was then more, more understandably, more intelligibly acted on rather than acting, um, more likely to be, you know, Manipulated um, by the society, I felt. Um, but it certainly isn't. It, what it never is is a response to critics saying, "Well, you can't do women." Um, and when I when I wrote the information, I was I was um, criticised for for not having a, a major woman character. And when I was 
planning out that novel in my mind, I thought I'd better have a poetess or a lady playwright or something to, to redress that balance. And then I thought, no, why am I bussing in a lot of birds for this book? You know, <laughs> this is, a, this is a, a book about the male ego. And, um, so the, the decision is, is not political, ever. Um, she has a boy's name. Yeah. <laughs> She's also mistaken on the telephone for yeah. a boy, mm -hmm. and anyone who hasn't actually seen her face assumes she's a man. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's as close to a bloke as yeah. a woman can It's a breeze you sail close to. Um, I think we have time for one more question. Right at the back there, mm. lady. What is it that attracts you to the film scripts you've written? What, what sort of subjects, or do you write them from scratch? Well, I'm, I've just had the usual ridiculous handful of experiences uh, with film scripts, but Ian has um, got much further. And <laughs> well, I'm older than you. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, Martin has written film scripts, like all of us. You know, we, we write film scripts, but they rarely give us much satisfaction. Mm. Partly because other people don't seem to be satisfied with those films. Mm -hmm. It's a, I mean, I've done enough to know that um, it's, it's like anti-writing, really, because you write something pretty good and then you spend the next six months uh, making it worse. Um, and there, there you really do see um, make, you know, naked market, market forces work. Um, the script conference is dependent on what film did 30 million over the weekend. And mm. and suddenly it's a, a buddy movie, or you know, it's got to have a, a dog in it. Or, um, <laughs> depending entirely on wh what's at the top of the variety top 10. And so you've got some good times out of it with Harvey Keitel and, mm. and all that. And, and some good material. It's, it's that way round that it's been useful to me. But um, the collaborative. You know, writing is not collaborative. Uh, the novelist is in an absolutely godlike position to his universe. Um, he doesn't have to worry about the crowd seeing the weather, um, or or about you know the expense of certain scenes, or um, or in, or you know what's what's selling at the moment. You know that you're completely protected from that, um, and it's it's at some level or another, some degree or another completely humiliating to, to submit to a collaborative project, and that's what script writing is. Well, on that very uncollaborative <laughs> ending, uh, to thank Martin for two wonderful readings. Thank you, Martin. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.